If everyone says something's a good idea, it probably means you're all wrong. It's what I say to my team all the time. If we all agree, I think we're all wrong. Consensus is important for many things, but when you're trying to make difficult decisions, if a decision is easy, you've probably not got enough information or enough diversity of opinion. That was Steve Caddick. Director of Innovations at the Wellcome Trust, and just one of the many inspirational speakers we have here at the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, a packed full two days that convenes current Rhodes Scholars, Rhodes Alumni, Atlantic Fellows, and leaders in the international business community to discuss innovation, entrepreneurship, and investment, as well as to explore how we can create ventures that improve the world. In this episode, Find out more about Steve Caddick's life story and his involvement with innovative ventures. We'll be speaking about how to translate ideas from a research setting into an impactful venture, the biotech spin-out company he co-founded called Firelogics, and listening to diverse opinions before making important decisions. It's really great to have you here, Steve, at the third annual Rhodes Ventures Forum, and especially to have you here for the podcast, where we'll be talking about your life story and your involvement with innovative ventures. So you're Director of Innovations at the Wellcome Trust. What is the innovations team's mission? Well, thank you, and um, it's great to be here, and um, especially on such a nice sunny day in Oxford. Um, so I joined Wellcome uh, four years ago to be the lead of the Innovations Division. And Wellcome has three funding divisions, uh, so that is three uh, groups which um, take the money that Wellcome makes and then uh, use it for our charitable purpose. There's Science, which runs primarily um, funding schemes for biomedical scientists to do basic science. There's our culture and society group, which runs our collection and does arts and humanities, social science, research and public engagement. And then the, the innovations division, which I lead, um, which is in ta taking scientific discoveries and turning them into the reality of patient benefit. And so a lot of what we're talking about this weekend at the forum is how to translate ideas created in an academic environment um, into the world of ventures. Do you think there is a divide between what goes on in the academic world and the world of ventures? And if you do think that there is, how do you think we should be bridging that gap? I think it's changing. Um, I think academics have always wanted to ensure that the work that is done in the academy um, has a positive impact on society. In fact, the arts and humanities are probably even more advanced than the sciences in that regard because you know, great works of literature, great paintings, um, great ideas um, have shaped and changed the world over many centuries. Science and technology, um, in some ways as it's become more specialised, um, can sometimes feel 
rather remote from the real world and so a step towards that might be a publication of some sort um, but I think increasingly um, academics are not simply satisfied with having a great academic career but they want to improve the world and make a contribution to the significant challenges that we face climate change food security health etc so I think understanding that creation of knowledge is a good in its own right, but also has the opportunity of improving the world for millions or even hundreds of millions or even billions of people. Um, they're not in conflict, but they're not always aligned. And so thinking about science and technology specifically, what are some of the struggles that researchers encounter when they're trying to translate their work into treatments, products or, or cures for diseases? At a fundamental level, one of the reasons that there's a disconnect is because people like me, I'm a chemist, so people like me like to reduce the world into a series of parameters that we can understand and study. And although you might have an answer in the form of a technology or an invention, the world is a complicated place and so the world may not receive your solution in the way that you think it does. That may be because of um, cultural barriers but it may be because actually you haven't realised that your technology hammer is not going to hit all the nails that you thought it was going to hit. So I think, I think at the top level what we understand in the lab may only have a passing relevance to application in the real world. Um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the, the time it takes. So academic research, you know, in my area, typically we might take us five, ten years to get some traction on a particular scientific problem. It takes at least that amount of time to then translate that into something practical and useful, probably double the time. So the time scale for this is enormous. You have a good idea when you're 25. You might be 55 before you're or 60 or 70 before you actually see it having an impact if you want to go all the way along the pathway with something. And I think part of your strategy at the Wellcome Trust to help this process is also to try and get people who are working outside of the life sciences involved in biomedical innovation to sort of ease this translation process. How do you go about doing that in practice, getting people from outside of the life sciences involved? Well, it's something that, that um, we in Wellcome have struggled a bit with. I mean, we have created some centres which bring together mathematicians, physicists, machine learning, engineers, along with surgeons and biomedical researchers. Um, I think there are a couple of things. The first is um, people spend time together for one of two reasons either because they have to or because they really want to. <laughs> and if they really want to, that's the best incentive. So finding ways to give people the time and space to spend time together is important. And we're quite lucky and welcome. We have a bit of money, so money can sometimes be a useful fuel to help fuel those, um, uh, those discussions. And the work that we're doing, for example, with Guy Thwaites, who's... Um, uh, head of the um, Oxford University Clinical Trials Unit at, in Vietnam, is to bring together engineers, computer scientists, machine learners, actually on the wards in Vietnam, to think about 
prototype devices that can help change practice in real time. And of course, the, the great thing about particularly engineers, I found, and, and I would say chemists too, is we like to find solutions that make a difference, and we quite like to do it quite quickly. And so if you can satisfy that by working with doctors and patients, actually you can get a very positive feedback loop. And so if people feel they're making progress, they're going to spend more time together. And one project that I think has been a really good fit for Wellcome Trust, and I think you've said that yourself, is Diagnostics for the Real World, yeah. uh, DRW. Yeah. And they went from being based on the University of Cambridge to becoming a commercial organisation with Wellcome Trust support. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that success or the impact that, that Yeah, that I mean, I was with Helen last week, Helen Lee last week, and, um, and there's, a, there's a wonderful film about, um, about that work. And um, this is a, a diagnostic device that has the potential for point-of-care diagnostic for HIV, but also for other infectious diseases. And, you know, what characterises any of those successes, and, the, you know, it's been rolled out in a number of countries in Africa, what, what's interesting about that is the passion and enthusiasm of the founder. I mean, you know, it takes a long time to drive these things through. And... Um, you know, Helen is irrepressible. I mean, it's the founder that drove the company trying to get this device called Samba, Samba 1 and Samba 2, to get point, inexpensive point-of-care diagnostic for, the tr- for management, really, of disease uh, for HIV. I think it's interesting that you focused on Helen's passion. Um, oh, yeah. Because... We've been hearing a lot about the founders' passion for what they're doing and how it's very difficult to get through all of the mistakes and what some people might call failures um, to then perhaps reach success. And it's, it's hard to do that if you, your heart's not really in it. I th- well, I think there's another thing. If you have vision, um, you know, you might be looking into the horizon and you say, there's something over there that's important. And you will, from time to time, find there are some people who say, what, you mean that lamppost is there? (laughs) So having vision is not always comfortable. Uh, So that's the first thing. And the second is, if you've got a truly disruptive idea, almost everyone's going to tell you it's a bad idea. Almost everyone. And in fact, I would go further. If everyone says something's a good idea, it probably means you're all wrong. It's what I say to my team all the time. If we all agree, I think we're all wrong. Consensus is important for many things but when you're trying to make difficult decisions if a decision is easy you've probably not got enough information or enough diversity of opinion Mm. and diversity of opinion really matters we had a great meeting in our team every team member we have 30 people in our team every team member everyone from you know the scientists the non-scientists legal people HR people, secretarial people, finance people, etc. Everyone comes in the room and everything that we think about, every opportunity that we look at, starts with a meeting on a Monday where we talk through. And my PA might be talking to me about a mental health intervention. Mm. And everyone has a voice. Everyone can express themselves. We have a vote at the end. That all comes to me in the form of advice. And then everyone also knows that then I make the decision. But I listen to everyone's voice and then I go back and I say, I've decided we should do this, which might be to agree with everyone, 
or it might be that I don't agree and I want to do something else. But it's very transparent. I think that's great, getting that diversity of Absolutely. opinion. Really important. But let's talk a little bit about Biologics, mm. which is the biotech spin-out company that you yeah. co-founded. And that's something you've done very much alongside your academic career. And I think it's a very uh, interesting mm. example of research that's been done as part of the university that's then been translated um, into a mm. venture. So talk to me a little bit about your yeah. journey. So that it, it's, it's a really good example of the type of venture that shows some strengths of the university system and some weaknesses associated with academic founders. Um, so the strength is that, so, so UCL generally prefers to translate its technology advances through licensing. And that's how most of the very big institutions work. Um, and so you partner with an organization and then you get a revenue. And so there are some really great examples. There's a, a nice example of that. There's a, there's a charity called LifeArc um, that uh, in the last couple of weeks has announced that it's just got more than a billion pounds from um, a Canadian pension fund provider to buy the advanced rights for um, revenue from um, uh, a drug called Keytruda, a Merck drug. And it's a license agreement. And MIT does a lot of license work, etc. What UCL did uh, extremely successfully was would take academic founders and say, we'll put a company in place and we'll have the intellectual property held in the company and then we will decide which route to go down. So, for example, Greg Winter, Humanization of Antibodies, said, you know, they had a huge amount of technology and they would make it really easily available to people at low cost of entry and it would then spread. And that's sort of what we're trying to do. We're trying to take our patented technologies and work in partnership with commercial organisations to try and help them make antibody drug conjugates. The challenge has been um, getting enough resources in without going full blown for you know a series A investment round which none of us wanted to do because we didn't, none of us wanted to give up our day job and leave the company. So there you are, we may be risk averse. Um, but there is another moment, there's another facet to this, which is for companies, particularly technology companies in, in the biological sciences, it takes a while for you to get some kind of brand identity. Mm. And, and that sounds trivial, but I don't think it is. If you look at some of the companies that have done quite well, they're around for a while. So survival is what matters, possibly for the first 10 years or so, particularly in biotech. What are your top tips for making a venture sustainable? Understand, um, understand your market. Understand your addressable market. Mm. And then discount your optimism by 90%. So if you think you've got a market of 100 million, then assume that you might get 10% of that. And then it might take you at least twice as long to get there as you think. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second is think about cost of goods. If you've got some kind of product, think about cost of goods, because that really matters. Uh, every cent matters, especially if you're making a, a physical product. And the third is think about the whole value chain. 
So think about ways in which you can, um, that your brand association might let be leveraged for additional um, uh, income. So one day, someone will walk through the door and create a healthcare company in which every intervention is free at the point of use and they will make their money some other way. So what sorts of areas would you like to start seeing more innovation? Is it exactly what you just said about free at the point of, of use? I'd love to see us um, do that. I think there are the two ends of the spectrum. The first is health systems and understanding how, how we can incentivize health rather than treating disease. So prevention rather than treatment and how we do that. And I think that means a very interesting discussion about health insurance, which I know is not uniformly popular discussion to have, but I think health insurance is part of this. Most people, particularly in wealthier parts of the world, do pay a lot of money to try and stay healthy. And I think we could take that a bit further. So I think I'd like to see I'd like to see globally joined up health systems in which we can um, redistribute um, health equality, if I can put it that way. And I think we're beginning to see that with philanthropy happening all over. You know, restaurant bills and you make a contribution. Wouldn't it be great if you could, you know, you're paying for your vaccination or something, and you can pay for several other people to be vaccinated at the same time as just a core part of that. So I'd like to see a bit more health equality and a little bit more equalization of health benefit and then um, at the front end I think the power of digital is exciting bewildering but also as you get closer to impact you also get closer to negative impact and the wonderful thing about digital interventions is they can be scaled quickly we need to get a good understanding of how we do that responsibly because if you can scale very quickly if there happened to be an error then you know obviously the the impact the negative impact is is enormous so i think there's a lot of work to be done on clinical trials of digital interventions to improve health particularly around mental health and and you know my own feeling is that um mental health needs to be far more prominent. I know there's been a lot of talk about it in recent times, but we are a long way from where we really need to be in terms of the effort being put into mental health. Mm, and I think that's actually something that we heard at the Rhodes Healthcare Forum in February, so it's interesting that you, that you bring that up. My final question is, so we're here at the forum where there are lots of speakers who've had a variety of different careers before they've started their um, their first venture or even after. If you hadn't pursued the path that you're on now, what do you think you would be doing instead? Wow, that's hard. Uh, well, so when I was, okay, so when I was 16 or 17, I was unemployed. I'd left school. Um, I was a hopeless student anyway. And, um, uh, and I got offered a job as a trainee um, market gardener, effectively. And I said no to that job. I was very lucky to be offered it. And I said no to that job. And it was quite difficult to say no to it because it would have been a good career. 
and of course now gardening is is, is a big thing. So so I suppose that was a choice that I made that was real. Um, I wanted to be an academic for quite a long time, so I was always happy with that. What would I do now? Um, well, there's still time. Um, I might. Um, I'm interested. I am interested in enterprise generally. So I think there are big disruptions to happen in health. I think there are big disruptions to happen in education. Um, I have an idea for digital masks, which I think will be enormous. I don't know whether or not I've got it in me to create that company, to, to create that, but I believe that in the future we will have none of these mobile phones and we will all be wearing masks. And I think the masks may be invisible, so we may be looking at each other and the masks are the same, or they might be playful, as in Victorian times. They will be filters, they will be communicators, they will be advertisers, and we will all be wearing masks. So, so if I were to set up a company today, it might be in, in, in digital smart masks. Well, we're definitely in the right place to be speaking about those sorts of visions. No doubt there are lots of people downstairs who would like to hear your thoughts on that as well. To hear more inspirational stories from the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, Listen in on my conversations with other speakers in the rest of these podcast episodes. This podcast was produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. The music you heard was called Feeling Sunny by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org.